When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time on the Reams farm. It was a big farm at the end of the road that I grew up on, Capeway Road, and it was run by his grandfather, James Reams. And Chris lived at the bottom of the property, so you'd have to drive all the way down there. My parents would to drop me off, and we would hang out. And I loved hanging out there because we would run the property. It was this big farm, and as kids, we could just take off and run and go play for hours with no adults knowing where we were. Remember those times? Isn't that crazy to think about? There was no smartphones with us, no watches on our wrists tracking us to our parents' phones or anything like that. And when you would walk the dirt road, if you wanted to go up to the top of the road to where uh, Chris's grandfather James lived, you had to pass a couple of rental properties that he owned that he had built on his farm and that he was making, you know, some money off of. And one of those rental properties had a family living in it, and they had a German shepherd that lived outside. And this was, you know, I I don't know if he truly was the meanest dog in the world, but in my eight-year-old mind, this thing was ready to rip my throat out, and we, we were just terrified of this dog. But this dog lived on a leash. It lived on a, on a, on a runner between two trees, and we knew how long that leash was. We had seen him run to try to get to, to, try to, get to us. We had seen it snap him back. So we knew the path that we could take, and we would walk by it fearlessly, knowing he can't, he can't get to us, right? But we also knew that if we were to walk into the radius of his territory that the leash provided him, that this dog was ready to unleash havoc on us. While no analogy is perfect, this image will serve us well tonight as we look at Revelation 20, because in Revelation 20, we have a dog on a leash. In Revelation 20, we have a dragon who is bound. And the people of God, the recipients of the first resurrection, are safe from his bite. And the message that they bear to this world, the one true saving gospel, will not fail in its task of redeeming every single name written down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And in the end, the dragon and all of his beasts in Babylon and everyone who has taken the mark of the beast will be defeated in a judgment of a lake of fire. Revelation 20 marks the beginning of the seventh and final cycle of the book of Revelation. We have seen this period of the age of the church, this time in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, described in a number of pictures. We have seen the second coming explained through an array of images. In the first cycle, we saw Jesus in the midst of his seven churches, In the second cycle, we saw Jesus as the only one worthy to open the seven seals of judgment, showing God's judgments in the history of the world, in this time in between the first coming and second coming of Christ. We saw a similar image as God's judgments were explained in the seven trumpets. And then in the fourth cycle in Revelation, we really had the centerpiece to the whole book, this picture of Christ fighting against the dragon In chapters 12 through 14, in the fifth cycle, we had the seven bulls, which focus on God's judgments at the end of this age. And then we had the sixth cycle, in which we saw the judgment of Babylon the harlot, and we saw the judgment of the first and second beast. We also saw the judgment of those who take the mark of the beast in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. When we were in chapters 12 through 14, 
that centerpiece section of the book, the centerpiece conflict of the book, the fourth cycle, where Christ is fighting against the the dragon, you have five different enemies of Christ and his church introduced. You have, of course, the dragon. You have beast number one rising up out of the sea. You have beast number two who talks like a lamb, uh, or looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. You have Babylon the harlot. And then you have those who take the mark of the beast. As we get to Revelation 20, with six cycles of Revelation completed, there is only one enemy that we have not seen slain. There is only one enemy we have not seen judged. And all the pictures of final judgment that we've gotten, we have not seen yet the ancient serpent, the devil, the destroyer, Satan himself go down. But with Revelation 20 marking the beginning of a new cycle... We leave the scene of final judgment. We leave the scene of Armageddon from Revelation 19, 11 through 21. We rewind back to the present day. This is what we've done at the end of every cycle in Revelation. As we start a new one, we go back to the age of witness. And then we work toward final judgment. And that's what we'll do here in the seventh cycle. And at the end of the seventh cycle, we will get the most glorious, full picture of heaven that the Bible gives us. Certainly the most glorious and full picture of heaven we get in the book of Revelation. But before we get there, we got to go through this judgment one more time. And when we do, we'll be dealing with the dog this time. Satan's day in court comes here in Revelation 20. And I want you to track the sequence of events as we go through them here as I read the text. We have the first coming of Christ in which Satan is seized. He is bound. There will be a little season of unparalleled evil as he is let loose. And then the Lord Jesus comes again. Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When we start with the first events of the sequence here, we see that Satan is bound and that Satan is tossed into the bottomless pit and that pit is sealed. Uh, Verse 1 begins with the words, Then I saw, which is a common phrase in the book of Revelation. It occurs 32 different times. 
The premillennial viewpoint that I'm sure many of you are familiar with argues that Revelation 20 verse 1 is a chronological event occurring after Revelation 19, 11 through 21. A premillennialist will say that then I saw is a phrase moving us along the timeline of history from one chronological event to the next. And where I do take issue with this argument is that when we read Revelation 19, 11 through 21, it certainly seemed to be describing final judgment. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done, by the, uh, done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so the enemies of God outside of Satan, we don't see his judgment there, that's reserved for the last and final cycle, but all the enemies of God are dealt with. Tom Schreiner commenting on this says, one significant problem with the premillennial view is that Jesus had destroyed all unbelievers at the end of chapter 19, Thus, it is difficult to understand how anyone could enter the millennium with an unglorified body. Why would Satan need to be bound if the armies opposing God were destroyed at the second coming? Meaning, who is he deceiving in chapter 20 if all the enemies of God are destroyed at the end of chapter 19? Of course, the premillennial response to this is that the armies of chapter 19 do not represent all people and that some are not destroyed and do enter into the millennial kingdom, but I don't really see it in the text and I don't see it in the Bible. And so with that in mind, then I saw would represent not the next event in a string of chronological events, but the beginning of cycle number seven, the final angle of the church age, and then we get the end. In it, we get the fullest picture of judgment because Satan himself will be defeated, and in it, we get the fullest picture of glory because we will see Jesus unequivocally reigning over his kingdom in chapters 21 and 22. In verse 1, an angel comes down from heaven, has a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Obviously, he's in the mood to lock somebody up, right? If you've got a key and you have a great chain, you're there to do some locking up. It's not our first go-round with the bottomless pit. We saw it back in chapter 9. Revelation 9, verse 1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. If you were with us on that night, you remember that Satan is the one given the key to the bottomless pit. And the bottomless pit is the abyss. It's showing how God is giving Satan this limited amount of authority for a limited amount of time. In verse 2, the dragon is seized. And he is bound for a thousand years. There is no doubt who this dragon is. That's something that all the different millennial views agree on. John describes him with four names so that we would not be confused. The dragon. So he is God's foe from Revelation 12 who wanted to eat his son and kill his people. The ancient serpent, meaning he's that old snake from the garden in Genesis 3 who deceived Adam and Eve. He's the devil, meaning he is the slanderer who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, and he is Satan. He is the adversary of the church, and he is the adversary of God. 
It's just the rebel angel who has led the charge against the glory of God throughout all of time. And now here in Revelation 20, at the beginning of cycle number 7, we're finally, praise God, seeing his demise. We are seeing his end. In verse 3, he's tossed into the abyss and sealed over him so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years concludes. After that, he will be released for a brief time. Now, we'll get to the question of Jesus' reign during the millennium, but I want to focus here on this binding of Satan in verse 3. Premillennialists say that Satan's binding happens when Jesus returns to the earth at the second coming. And they say Satan can't be locked up right now, can't be locked up before the Lord returns, because clearly he's alive and well in this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul even calls him the God of this world. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If he is called the God of this world, well, how in the world could he be bound right now? That's more than a fair question. And so allow me to spend a little time unpacking my understanding of these verses. And to to understand Revelation 20, I think we've got to go to John 12. I think John 12 is the key to understanding Revelation 20. So John 12, verse 20, John wrote, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When Jesus says that the hour has come for him to be glorified, what does he mean by that? Well, he means it's time for him to go and die. You say, well, that doesn't sound glorious. Well, he's going to die, and then he's going to what? He's going to resurrect. And then, after spending time on earth and and being seen, and there are witnesses to his resurrection, he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And that is what he's talking about here. When he's talking about that the time has come for him to be glorified, it is time for him to die, to rise again, and to ascend to the right hand of the Father. This is why right after these words, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it doesn't bear much fruit. But if it does, it does bear much fruit. He must die in order to resurrect and ascend and free his people from their bondage to sin and give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then a few verses later, he repeats that his hour has come. But this time, he does not refer to his saving work as his glory, but as what? As the judgment of the world and as the casting out of the ruler of the world. John 12, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world, he says. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross of Jesus judged this world in the sense that it exposed the awfulness of sin. I could go anywhere in the world and I could say, you are a sinner, the law of God exposes it. And I could say, I'm not a sinner. No way, I'm I'm a good person. You say, well then look at the cross. 
where your sin massacred the Son of God. And tell me again that you are born good. And, and so, understanding that, the cross of Christ exposes just how depraved this world is. It judges the sin of the world. And yet also, the cross of Christ, in the redeeming work that it provides, it disarms Satan and his minions. As he bears the guilt of his people, he, he disarms the enemy. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And now with the the work of Jesus on Calvary completed, Satan is cast down and he is bound in the sense that he will not stop the gospel from going to all nations. The gospel is not just going to go to Jews. We know that. Right? I'm as Gentile as it gets. It's reached the Gentiles too, praise God. Before Jesus' first coming, I want you to think about the world. The nations were in abject darkness. Just read Deuteronomy 7. God explains that he has revealed himself and he has um, called out the Israelites because he loves them. I chose you because I love you. And then at the top of the passage... There's a bunch of ites, and he didn't choose them. Parasites and Girgashites and, 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 and Hittites. And, and he, he didn't put his, his selective, redemptive love on those ites. He put it on Israel when you read Deuteronomy 7, right? And so understanding that, the nations around Israel and in the world are living in utter darkness before Jesus comes. You read through the Old Testament, unless a nation comes in contact with Israel, or unless Israel shows up in their territory, they don't know the law, and they don't know about the temple, they don't know about the sacrifices, and they are living in darkness. But now, that has changed. Before the nations did not have the light that Israel had, but now with Jesus coming, accomplishing his saving work, the gospel is going to go to those ites at the beginning of Deuteronomy 7, right? The gospel is going to go to other people groups. It's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that is why Jesus says right after all this in John 12, 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All types of people, all types of ites, all types of people from all types of nations. In fact, when we think about the casting out that happens to Satan in the first coming of Christ and in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, there's a direct connection between Revelation 20 and John 12 because when Jesus says in John 12, 31, the ruler of this world is now cast out, the same Greek word is used to refer to Satan being thrown into the pit in Revelation 20, verse 3. Same word. He cast him out. He bound him. In the pit during this age, which is described as the thousand years. And during this time, Jesus will gather every name from every nation that is written in the Lamb's book of life. And with the strong man bound, his house is ready to be plundered. Matthew 12, verse 
28, Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. He overcame Satan in the wilderness, temptations by the word of his father. He saw Satan fall like lightning when he sends the 70 to go out and evangelize. And now with his saving work done, he has bound him and the gospel will go to the nations during this millennial reign, during this thousand year period. The thousand years is like all the other numbers in Revelation. It's a symbol communicating to us. One thousand is a multiple of ten. Ten and its multiples in the Bible symbolize an indefinite amount of time or an indefinite amount from the perspective of humanity. So, throughout the Bible, we see thousand being used in an extreme way or in a, in a hyperbolic way to describe things that human beings from their perspective just can't measure. For example, in explaining how rich God is, the Bible says, for the beasts of every forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean that God only owns a thousand hills? Of course not. It's a way for us as human beings to say he owns so many hills I can't even count them. Daniel 7, verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. It's explaining, again, a multitude, an amount that can't be measured. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And so with these things in mind, it's not hard for us to imagine that 1,000 years would be a symbolic number to explain this very large amount of time, an indefinite amount of time from our perspective, because we don't know when Jesus is going to return, but this large amount of time in between his first coming and his second coming. And what is the purpose of the binding of Satan during this time? Why? Why is he bound? Well, the scriptures tell us so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. The gospel will go to every nation. No Gentile nation is going to be in darkness. And a multitude who did not take the mark and whose names are written in the Lamb's book will be saved from every tribe. Number one tonight, Satan is bound that the gospel may advance. It would be really tempting for us to simply have a night where we talk about this and we forget to apply the text, right? This is not a passage of Scripture that exists purely for us to figure out our eschatological timeline or our eschatological framework or whatever theology we believe about the end times. In fact, that's not the purpose of the text at all. This was intended to be a passage of comfort that motivated first century Asia Minor Christians on toward faithful perseverance in the midst of tribulation and persecution. This passage is a reminder to them then and to us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the Lord's church. I tell you, you are Peter, Jesus says, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Lord's going to resurrect his people from their graves. Nothing's going to stop it. You see the horror in this world and you think things are out of control and you think that There's no hope when the truth is Satan is bound. He's a dog on a leash. 
He can only spew his havoc within the radius that he has been given. And so he will bite, he will bark, he will gnash his teeth, but the Lord will finish the task of the Great Commission through his people, and that dog will not be able to stop it. So pray for evangelism, pray for missions in fervent faith with an expectation that souls are going to be saved because they are going to be saved. Give sacrificially towards missions like your pennies will make a difference because they do make a difference. Go on mission trips and serve at Trunk or Treat and coach upper teams with gladness like your hand on the plow matters because it does matter. If there is a sense in which the dragon is bound from deceiving those whose names have been written down before time, and it's just a matter of us going out and getting them. We, we don't know who belongs to the Lord or who will ultimately belong to the Lord. Of course not. We just tell everyone. But the binding gives us absolute confidence that the Lord's word is going to have its saving effect. And if it doesn't, Well, Brother Paul gave us our answer. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let's keep going. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. John says, Then I saw, again, so it's a new picture now. This vision in verses 4 through 6 seems to be taking place at the same time as the vision in verses 1 through 3 that's indicated by the fact that we're dealing with the same period of a thousand years. John sees thrones in verse 4. Those seated on the thrones are those who have been given the authority to judge. The souls of the martyrs are seen. They come to life, they reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead come to life after the 1,000 years end. You see that in verse 5. And John calls this the first resurrection. And then in verse 6, you see that the second death has no power over those who share in the first resurrection. They will be priests of God and reign with him for a thousand years. Premillennialists understand verses 4 through 6 to refer to the physical resurrection. Those who were martyred for Christ are resurrected by God. They're vindicated by being given glorified bodies. They reign with Christ on the earth in a physical millennial kingdom for 1,000 years. For the first eight or so years of my Christian walk, this certainly was the viewpoint that I held. But while I was in seminary, I became convinced that this was a text not about physical resurrection, but about spiritual resurrection. Some amillennialists would say this is about regeneration, that the first resurrection is actually when uh, the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. But I understand this text to actually be about brothers or sisters who have passed on to heaven before the return of Christ. And I think the key for understanding this is found in verse 5 when John speaks of the first resurrection. I don't think it's a resurrection of the body because the text says he saw the souls. And it's true that the Greek word here for resurrection refers to physical resurrection every other time it's used in the New Testament. And premillennialists will remind you of that. It is true. But I believe that the context begs us to treat it differently because John says he sees souls. And not only is he talking about souls, he's talking about heaven. He sees thrones in verse 4. Where do we see thrones in Revelation? Until the Lord Jesus returns, they're in heaven. Furthermore, we're talking about the souls of the beheaded, which would also point us toward a heavenly reality. 
not an earthly reality, a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. And finally, this reign happens with Christ. You see that in verse 4. Where is Jesus at right now? He is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And so putting these things together, the first resurrection, the coming to life that John speaks of in verse 5 is not a physical resurrection, but a resurrection to life in the intermediate heaven. The heaven that the souls of believers go to now, where they await the day when Jesus will return and they will receive their glorified bodies. It's what's described as Abraham's side in Jesus' parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom, your Bible might say. The rich man also died and was buried. We'll get to him in a moment. It's the place I'm speaking of when I do a funeral, and I say one of our brothers or sisters is with Jesus in glory as we speak. It's the place that Jesus was talking about when he looked at the thief on the cross next to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. It is the magnificent waiting room for the children of God until the trumpet of God sounds and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and God's people live in their perfect bodies forever. We long for that day. We will cast off these bodies which are fashioned after the first Adam and we will get our new bodies fashioned after the second Adam. That's the second resurrection and this is the first. And the first is about our passing from life to life. So number two, believers are alive because the gospel is true. Believers are alive because the gospel is true. This is the promise of the gospel. That anyone who remained faithful until the end, anyone who did not take the mark of the beast, comes to life and reigns with Christ for a thousand years. They don't come to life because they earned the first resurrection through a life of righteousness. Instead, they come to life by the grace of God, the very grace of God that carried them through this life, through their years of faithful living. But what is the nature of this millennial reign? Well, first of all, we find out that these brothers or sisters who have already passed away are judging with Jesus. And that should be no surprise because in Revelation, we've seen believers given all sorts of promises about participating with Christ in his messianic activity. Like in chapter 2, verse 26, when believers are told that they will be rewarded by sharing in his authority over the nations. Or that they'll sit with him on his throne in chapter 3, verse 21. They stand with him on Zion in chapter 14, verse 1. And here we see that they sit with him in judgment. Secondly, they live with Jesus. You see that in verse 4 as well. They come to life and they're with Christ. They live with Jesus. And they'll never be separated from him again. When brothers or sisters in this age pass away and they go to be with the Lord in the intermediate heaven, they immediately have the comfort as soon as they see the face of the Lord that there will never be a time again that I do not see the face of my Lord. There will never be a time again that I'm not with Him or I do not know in an unfiltered way that He is my God and I belong to Him. I am a part of His people. What could be better than that? And you see that they reign with Jesus. John states it in verses 5 and 6. Jesus rules over the whole world as we speak, right? But not everyone in the common kingdom of man obeys him. He also rules over his redemptive kingdom. In the redemptive kingdom, he is loved. He is obeyed as the majestic royal Messiah that he is. And until he returns... We have these little kingdom outposts we call local churches and we spread the light of the gospel far and wide. And one day he will return and when that happens, we won't just have gospel outposts. His knowledge will cover the earth like water covers the sea. 
And until then, his children, his sheep, his saints who have passed away are reigning with him in the intermediate heaven, awaiting the full consummation of the kingdom where they will reign with him forever on the earth. And finally, they are priests of God and of Jesus. John says this in verse 6. To say that the saints in the intermediate heaven are priests of God is to say that they worship him day and night. And it's not the first time we've seen this idea. In Revelation 5.10, it said, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In Revelation 20, verse 6, the priests are not on the earth yet. They are glorified worshipers in heaven. Going back up to verse 5, John says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This would refer to unbelievers, those who take the mark and rebel against the Lord unto death. They will face God in judgment, and then they will go to the place that the rich man is found in the parable of Christ in Luke 16. The poor man goes to Abraham's side, but Jesus says the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. This is Hades. This is the abyss. This is the place of condemnation for the souls of the enemies of God. But at the end of this age, as horrible as that place is, they will come to life in the sense that they will receive a resurrection of judgment, and this is what Jesus taught. John 5, do not marvel at this, he says in verse 28, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And don't say this lightly, we'll see it next week. Then they will be cast into the lake of fire where not just their souls but their bodies will experience the wrath of God. Revelation 20 verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death in Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And that is why verse 6 emphatically says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. The first resurrection belongs to you. You will never ever taste the lake of fire. Death's sting has been removed. You might say, well why would John talk about this? Why would he go out of his way to speak about this? And William Hendrickson is helpful on this. William Hendrickson says, Roman persecutions are raging. Martyrs are calmly laying their heads under the executioner's sword. Paul had already done this, and also James. Rather than say the emperor is Lord, or drop incense on the altar of a pagan priest as a token of worshiping the emperor, believers confess Christ even in the midst of the flames, while they are thrown before the wild beast in the Roman amphitheaters. But Christ is not unmindful of his grievously afflicted disciples. He sustains them in order that they may remain faithful to the end. For that very reason, he gives them, or he gives to his sorely tried church the vision of the souls of them who have been beheaded for the testimony of Christ. Is it not encouraging in the midst of wars and rumors of wars to hear these words of Scripture tonight? Is it not encouraging in the midst of battles with health and disease that these things are true? That when we die, we will not die? 
We will be resurrected to life in the intermediate heaven, that we will go there to be with Jesus and we will remain with him forever, and that when he returns, we will ride with him as he slays evil once and for all. Recently, when we were at the Pillar Unite conference, which was like the national, really global conference for Pillar churches, I met a guy pastoring a Pillar church in the foothills of eastern Kentucky. He's not like me. He doesn't have six, seven other pastors to meet up with in his area. He's the only Pillar Baptist church in his area. And one of the only churches in his area, a very rural area. And he told me that since he's been at the church, he has done an average of 15 funerals a year. This brother's been pastoring these people for six years. And I told him I did 11 in one year one time, and I thought that was crazy. I said, man, you've been going through it. How comforting is it for that man to know as he buries his church members who did not take the mark that he's simply putting their bodies in the ground to their final resting place until the trumpet sounds. And until then, their souls are reigning with Christ during this age of witness. We're doing the work on the ground as the church militant on the earth, but they are with Christ reigning and judging as the church triumphant in his presence. And then in the final few verses of the passage, we have a second angle of the last battle, Armageddon. We saw the first angle in chapter 19, 11 through 21. Now we get another look. Verse 7 speaks to Satan's little season of being let loose. It was referred to in verse 3. It says he'll be released for a little while, bound for a thousand years, then let out for a small amount of time. So that would mean that at the end of the age of witness, at the end of this church age, he's going to be let out, let loose for a little bit of time. And that's when you're going to see the final Antichrist raise up. Paul talks about this. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. The day of the Lord is not going to come until the man of lawlessness comes first. The man of lawlessness has not come yet. Joel Beakey says the final embodiment of evil appears to have not yet arrived. Something is restraining him. Lawlessness is on a chain Satan is bound. So again, we see this idea of the binding of Satan even in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 7. We know that the mystery of lawlessness is at work in the world. We see it. Evil's there, but it's not as bad as it could be. Why? Because the man of lawlessness is restrained. Evil is restrained. Satan is bound. God's not letting it be as bad as it could be during this age of witness. But at the end of this age... The Lord's going to let Satan off his leash and out of his pit and the work of the church will be done and the gospel will have reached every shore. It will have all been completed and Satan will come out and he will rally up his troops and he and his man of lawlessness will march up over the broad plain of the earth and you know what's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing. That's the big culmination. Here we go. It's the big battle and then it's just over. 
This big day of destruction that's been prophesied is exactly that. It's a big day of destruction. It's not a back and forth battle. What was said in Genesis 3? One is going to come from Eve's line. His heel will be bruised and then he will step on the head of the serpent. And that is exactly what is happening. When the Lord Jesus returns, he will step on the head of the serpent. His heel was bruised at the cross, but now he will give the fatal blow. He will crush the serpent's head. It was promised throughout all the Old Testament prophets, most notably Ezekiel. If you read Ezekiel, Revelation 20 and 21 follows the sequence of Ezekiel 36 through 48, undeniably. Ezekiel has these visions of Israel being spiritually resurrected and unified under a king like David in the New Covenant. Does that sound like it might pertain? But after the New Covenant promises, Ezekiel describes an attack by an international army, Gog of the land of Magog, against God's people. That's Revelation 20, 7-9. The prophetic language of Ezekiel is used here to let the hearer know that with this battle, the prophesied time has come, the Lord is going to defeat His enemies, and He's going to rule this world through His Son, Jesus Christ, the better David, the second Adam. And interestingly enough, you keep reading Ezekiel 40-48, through it's all about God's glory in a new temple. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Revelation 21. Number three tonight, and lastly, God's enemies are defeated because the gospel prevails. God's enemies are defeated because the gospel prevails. Like I said, it's not much of a battle here. Camp of saints is surrounded, and then fire just comes down from heaven and consumes the enemies who have coalesced with the dragon and the man of lawlessness. Remember that in chapter 19, 11 through 21, we already saw the first and the second beast killed. The man of lawlessness is the final horrible iteration of the second beast. The beast was captured And with it, the false prophet, that's the man of lawlessness, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is all happening in the same battle. The language in chapter 19 is straight from Ezekiel 38 and 39, just like the Gog and Magog language in chapter 20, to let us know we're dealing with the same stuff here. It's the same battle, two different angles. It's two different angles of Armageddon. And the angle we're shown in chapter 20 is conclusive. And if you're a football fan, you know what I mean by that. For a call to be overturned, it's got to be what? Conclusive evidence. We've got to see some green in between the receiver's toe and the sideline, right? We've got to see that ball come out before the knee hits the ground. And here, it's conclusive, Let me read chapter 20, verse 10, because this is the ball coming out before the knee hits the ground. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Praise God and amen. Every Sunday before we leave, what do we say to each other? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, this is that moment that we talk about in our benediction. One of the reasons I became convinced of amillennialism back in 2008, and have remained convinced of it, is partly because of the fact that it's the only interpretation of Revelation that places everything at the end in a singular event. It doesn't break up the second coming and the rapture. 
It's one event that takes place at the end of this age. It doesn't separate the resurrection of believers and unbelievers. Just as Jesus talks about it in John 5, 28 and 29, we see both taking place in final judgment on the day of the Lord. It doesn't separate the second coming and the establishment of the eternal age by a thousand year millennial reign. This age ends, final judgment happens, the eternal age begins. It doesn't have people running around on earth who are deceived after the second coming of Christ, something that premillennialism requires. When I read the Bible, the consistent pattern I see is that there is a singular event that is anticipated, and that event is called the day of the Lord, and that will bring this age to a close, and it will start an age of glory. And that is exactly what Revelation 21 through 10 is showing us, and that's why I wanted to teach it all at one time. I was tempted to say, well, let's do 7 through 10 as its own night. And initially, Ben and I had it broken up that way. But I wanted us to see the, the, the singular event of the day of the Lord. Satan is bound during the age of witness. He will not stop the gospel from saving the people of God from every nation. Believers who have passed away are already tasting the initial fruits of glory with Christ. After all believers who are going to believe have believed, Satan will be let loose for a brief time. The Antichrist will run amok. Evil will be unparalleled and unprecedented. And then the Lord will return. Final judgment will commence. Believers will be resurrected unto the new heaven and new earth. Unbelievers will be resurrected unto the lake of fire. And eternity future will begin. Now you might disagree with all of that. But regardless of where you land on it, you better be ready for the day of the Lord. And that's really the last thing I want to say to you tonight. We can have our disagreements about premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism, and then over in the dispensational crowd, you got, well, we're mid-trib and we're pre-trib, and in the amill crowd, where we believe first resurrection's regeneration, and Michael over here believes it's about believers dying and passing from life to life, right? Within the camps, even, there's different, uh, there's different strains and, and, and disagreements and whatnot, but the bottom line is, at the end of the day, you better be ready for the day of the Lord. Matthew 7.20 says, Thus you will recognize them by your fruits, or by their fruits. And on that day, all of our fruits will be found out. Are you rotten? Down to the core. Or has the regenerating, life-giving Spirit of God raised your dead heart to life? What all Bible-believing Christians agree on is that Jesus Christ is going to return and he will judge the living and the dead. The only hope for your soul is is that instead of him being your judge then, he will be your redeemer now. And so bow your knee and give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sinning, turn away from it, and agree with God that he is right and that you are wrong. And submit yourself to his authority as Lord. And pray to him and, and ask him, plead with him to forgive you of your sins, not because of anything you've done, not because any good in you, just as he chose the people in Deuteronomy 7 and he told them, it's not because you're better than anybody else or you're more holy than anybody else. I choose you because I love you. It's not going to be because you're great or you're good or you've done anything to earn forgiveness. You plead for forgiveness on the basis of Jesus Christ that the Son of God died in your place and resurrected in your place to crush your sin and your death. One day he's going to return, and it will be as in the days of Noah. Few will be ready, but blessed are those who are. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection.
Father God, I thank you so much for the promise of the gospel and the fact that we know the gospel is true. Lord, whether my brothers and sisters here tonight agree that Revelation 20, 4 through 6 is talking about people that have passed on and from life to life and they're reigning with Jesus now, whether this text is about that or not, we know it's true. We know that is what's happening. So we thank you for that. And we know one day you will return and we will be in our resurrected bodies forever. We thank you for that, Lord. Do not let us lose hope. Father, let us get on our knees. When we see Israel and Palestine, let us get on our knees and pray with hope that Satan is bound from keeping the gospel reaching the nations. That we would pray with hope that the gospel would reach people in the midst of the strife over there. That when we read here that you're going to return and that you are going to deal with our adversary, you're going to deal with Satan and any who have cast their lot with him, then we can get on our knees with hope and pray imprecatory prayers that you will break the teeth of evil people. Because we know you are a just God. So what a hope-giving passage this is tonight, God. Don't let us get so caught up in the eschatology and the when is this going to happen and whose timeline is right that we miss out on the hope. Satan will be defeated. Your son will reign and your people will reign with him. We love you, Lord. We thank you for our hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.